Do they have chicken houses around here? Anybody ever been in a 450-foot-long chicken house about the fifth week of a six-week cycle with a bunch of roasters in there? That's kind of what it sounded like a few minutes ago, but it smells a lot better in here. I'll give you that. That's good, though. That's good. It's like Randy said Sunday, I believe it was, talking about it's good to hear people conversing and fellowshipping. And, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of what we come together for. You know, we come here to hear the truth, to share the truth, to, to encourage one another, but a whole lot of that building up, a lot of that edifying comes not just through preaching and teaching the Word, but through the relationships with one another. And it's nice, even though most of you saw the same folks just 24 hours ago, but it's nice that you still got something to say to them. You know, you can talk about what happened to you today, and or what, you know, or finish that conversation that, you know, got started last night or whatever. That, that's always good. I love it. You know, I don't, I, I just, I don't like that funeral home atmosphere in an auditorium. I never have. I don't like it during a service. I think we, I like the songs that you picked to sing here. Your song leaders have done an excellent job. And for the most part, I, and I, I, I love ballads, you know, country music. I, it's when I sing for entertainment for different groups and stuff. Typically, I'm going to sing ballads and slower stuff, but, and I like some of that in the worship services, but for the most part, man, I like it when you pick out songs that kind of keep it moving, keep it going, and especially when you know you've got a long-winded preacher coming up behind you, and if you put people to sleep before I get up here, I'm dead, you know? I mean, I'm just in real trouble. It's hard enough as it is to stay awake sometimes, isn't it? Especially when it's been so beautiful out there, and some of you have been outside, and you know, working hard, and some of us have been outside playing hard, and, you know, and it just, you sit down for the first time really almost all day, and whoo, you know, it's it's difficult. So I'll try to keep you awake, and maybe won't have to keep you awake too long. I've really had a good time this week. As I said yesterday, it's just too short. That's the only problem. I understand it fully. I know about schedules. I know, you know, I understand when I'm the preacher, you know, it's easy for me to get here each night, but when it's at home where I do my thing every day, it's a whole different ballgame. And so I understand that, and I appreciate those of you from here at the Pippin congregation that have been here every service. That really means a lot to me. It means a lot to your local leadership, I know. You obviously have done a good job in inviting your friends and neighbors. I've met some of them. You've obviously gotten gotten the word out to area congregations because I've met many, many people from different congregations, even in different counties, that have come to this effort because of your pushing it and trying to get the word out. So I appreciate that. It makes me feel good to know that people are coming because you've invited them and uh, because we could have the Apostle Paul speaking. And if nobody knows that he's there, nobody's going to show. And I know that for the most part, People come because they're asked. It's not really because of who's preaching. I'm not saying the preacher doesn't have something to do with it. But typically, it's because somebody that they trust asked them and said, I think it would be worth your while. So I personally appreciate you doing that and going to all of that effort. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39, you remember the fellow came and he was asking Jesus. He was trying to trick him. Yeah, they, the Pharisees were doing Sadducees. All they were doing this all the time. You know, they finally figured it out. But you know, it just—I I doubt the same person ever tried to trick him twice. Because after the first humiliation, they probably learned better. They never could back him in a corner, even though they thought they could. And so this fellow came up to him and said, "Jesus," or actually he said, "Master, what is the greatest commandment?" 
And, of course, he really wasn't all that concerned, from what I can gather, about what the greatest commandment was. What he wanted Jesus to do was go back to the Ten Commandments and pick out one. And somehow pick out one, and then, the, then, then they could say, okay, see there? He doesn't apply all of the Ten Commandments equally. He thinks one of them is more important. They wanted to trick him, but, of course, Jesus being Jesus, that is God, the Son, he is wiser than man, and so he understood their thoughts, and he always picked his words carefully. And he said the first and greatest commandment is like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second, notice he didn't stop with just one, and the second is like unto it, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. What he did in reality was encapsulate nine, well actually all ten, of the Ten Commandments. The first four have to do with honoring God, from putting no other gods before him, not taking his name in vain, and remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. All of those have to do with putting God first, so that's what he said was first. And then the next six all have to do with our relationships with one another. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, all those don't things. you know. And so he really wrapped up all ten of them, and the man couldn't argue with him. But that second one is what I want us to notice tonight. And the last part of it, the second greatest commandment is like the first, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. You know, the psalmist David wrote back in the eighth psalm, the first five verses, he'd started out, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who has set your glory above the heavens. And then he says, out of the mouth of babes and so on. And then he gets down to around verses 4 and 5, and he says that, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visited him? He talks about the unbelievable glory of God, and then he says, and for whatever reason, God, you have made man just a little lower than the angels. In other words, God regards the estate of humanity as being so important that he created us superior to all the rest of the creation. In fact, just a cut below, in some ways, the very heavenly beings themselves, the angels that God had created at some point prior to Genesis chapter 1. And David was amazed that God cared that much about man to make him that important in the grand eternal scheme of things. Love your neighbor as yourself. God loves you unbelievably much. Are you happy with who you are? Am I happy with what I am? Do I, can I look in the mirror and, I, and I'm seeing a fellow there in the mirror reflected back that I'm not smugly satisfied and I'm not necessarily you know, just overwhelmed with, okay, I just need to stay where I am because I've come so far. Now, I know I still need to grow, but can I look in the mirror, and when I look at that face there, can I see a person with whom I am content? Am I happy with who I am and what I am? Or does that feeling ever strike you from time to time that you know life's just not fair? Other people seem to get treated a lot better than I do by life. And it's just not fair. seems like somehow God or life or somebody, something, just fate, whatever, something is just picking on me. And it just I just seem to have a harder time than I ought to have. Well, if you feel that way, 
And when you look in the mirror, if you're not really content with that person looking back, you're not alone. You are not alone. That feeling is a problem throughout the world. And it's a problem in the church. A lot of people just seem to give up the fight. In fact, a lot of people do give up. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death, particularly among young people about ages 18 to 24. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Your life has barely gotten started, and for whatever reason you feel compelled to end it? I just, I can't, I can hardly fathom why a young person would do that. I understand why. I've talked to, I've talked to a child of mine at one time. I'm, and I made a veiled reference to my oldest, to my son last night, and at one point he called me when he was in one of his much difficult places. And he said, well, he said, I was going to kill myself. And uh, he said, I wrote a bad check, took the money, went to a casino, gambled it all away, decided if I win, I'll pay off all my debts. If I don't, I'll just shoot myself. I said, well, obviously you're talking to me, so why didn't you shoot yourself? I said, I'm sure you lost. He said, oh, yeah. I said, well, then why didn't you shoot yourself? I know that isn't exactly the response he was looking for. And uh, he said, well, I didn't have a gun. I said, Alan, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I said, you aren't going to kill yourself. You know, get a, use your brain. And I'm sure he's thinking, wait a minute, I called to be consoled and, ooh, to scare daddy. And, it and I explained to him, you know, the only reason you would kill yourself is because you're hurting. Because you're hurting so bad, you just want the hurt to stop. Let me promise you this, son. I said, the minute the bullet enters your brain, you'll wake up and you'll be hurting more than you've ever hurt in your life, and it will be for eternity. You decide to drown yourself, the minute your lungs get filled with water and you quit breathing, you will wake up in a place and you will hurt more than you have ever hurt. Don't be foolish. He called his mom a day or two later and said, well, dad even ruined suicide for me. You know, so, but uh, I made my point. But that's the only reason that people end it, is to quit the hurt. And if we could just get people to understand, the hurt only gets worse. It doesn't get better. If that's the way I go out, it doesn't get better. I need to learn to love myself. That's the problem. Jesus said I need to love others like I love myself. Have you ever known anybody in the church? Have you ever known of congregations that split? Why did they split the vast majority of the time? I'm not saying it's never because of doctrinal issues, but that is so rare, it's almost never. Why typically do congregations split? Because somebody can't get along with somebody else and people start taking sides. That's why. It's nearly always a personality thing that, that ends up being my opinion and that's your opinion and both of us think they're doctrine and we're both wrong and we neither one will back down and somebody walks out the door. The reason that folks in the church don't get along sometimes any better than we do with one another is because we don't get along with ourselves. When that hard head that's always making trouble goes home, he doesn't get along with the man in the mirror any more than he gets along with you. That's why he doesn't get along with you. Jesus let us in on the secret to loving others first. I have to learn to love myself. I know that back in the 70s when the bus ministry was huge, people went around driving joy buses. And I understand the concept was really nice. Jesus, others, and yourself last. But really it doesn't work that way. 
I got to put myself first somewhere because if I don't learn to love myself, I will never be able to properly love others. If I never take the time for myself and understand who I am and know what my weaknesses are and my strengths are and know that I count in God's eyes, I matter to Him. Until I know that, I won't ever be able to help you the way that I should. Now you look at Jesus. You say, He didn't spend any time for Himself. Oh, yes, He did, but that's not the point. We get the gospel accounts of His ministry. How could He do that? How could he wash the filthy feet of those apostles, even when one of them was going to betray him? How could he serve like that? How could he do those menial, mundane tasks, knowing that he's the only begotten Son of God, because he knew he was the only begotten Son of God? And he knew why he was here. He knew where he came from. He knew why he was here. And he knew where he was going when this was over. And so he fulfilled his mission. And who he was had nothing to do with what he did. Who he was was based on his relationship with his Father in heaven. What he did was what he did. That's why when he washed the disciples' feet, he was no less Jesus than he was before he washed their feet, where many of us would have a very difficult time with that because we know people would look down on us for doing that kind of work. No, Jesus understood. What you do is what you do. Who you are is based upon your relationship with the Father, ultimately. You know, we see it all the time. We see it all the time in church. People can't get along with their brothers and sisters because they can't get along with themselves. And then some folks finally just give up. They look at that fellow in the mirror and you know, the reason he became a Christian was because he realized he was a sinner and he kept making mistakes and so he was baptized into Christ. And lo and behold, guess what happens now? He keeps on making mistakes. And finally he just says, well, I'm a sinner. Therefore, I must be a failure. So I'll just quit. Well, get rid of that kind of thinking. We're all sinners. If being a sinner makes me a failure, then we all need to just go home and close the doors because we're hopeless. Because we're all sinners. Cheer up. You're not a failure. In fact, you are somebody. And I want to give you three reasons why. Three reasons why you are somebody. Folks, this is a critically important principle for us to learn. Take it from someone who learned the hard way. Outside of a knowledge of God Almighty, the next best lesson I can get instilled in the heart of my children is that they count, that they are important, that what they think matters, that they don't have to go along with the crowd to be somebody. I need, when I send that teenager out into a teenager's world where I don't matter anymore and his friends do, and every teenager on earth goes through that where their peers momentarily are more important than mom and dad. Maybe it doesn't last long, but at the heat of the moment, it's real. It happens. Just don't, you can't change it. Prepare them for it. And when that person says, hey, how about a drink? Hey, you want this cigarette? How about the, how about the drugs? Hey, let's go over here and do this. Let's go get into this trouble. If my child doesn't have the internal fortitude to say, I am not going to do that. Well, why not? Because I don't need to do that. I'm better than that. That's why. 
And I wish you wouldn't do it too. Well, you're just a chicken. You're just crazy. Well, you just, you know, if you're going, if you want to be part of our group, you are going to do this. They need to have the strength and the self-worth and self-value to stand up and say, then I don't need your group. See ya. And until my kids can do that, they're in for a world of trouble. Hopefully the trouble will be little. But sometimes that little trouble, sometimes that first teenage drink leads to an entire lifetime of unbelievable hurt and sorrow and tragedy and loss, and not just for your child, but for everybody around them. Instill self-confidence. I'm not talking about braggadocia. I'm not talking about egotism. Typically, the person who is egotistical is in reality very insecure and is trying the best he can to cover that insecurity by acting like he thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, but when he's alone, he knows better. And he's setting himself up for a humongous fall one day. Now, I'm talking about true self-esteem. That's where humility comes from. You say, wait a minute now, wait a minute. How can I be humble when you're up there talking about I need to understand how great I am? That's exactly where humility comes from. What is humility? Humility is a proper sense of self-esteem that allows me to humble myself before others and before God without losing my sense of self-worth. If every time I bow down, if every time I give in, if you want to call it that, it knocks a little chunk off my self-worth, then that's not humility. That's just killing myself. Humility and what allows me to continue to be humble all of my life is knowing that I'm important to God and I need to be important to myself and consequently then, whatever God asks me to do, however humble it may be, I can do it with a smile on my face. And if somebody wants to ridicule me for it, let them go ahead. Because they're not who makes me what I am. It's between me and God. And as long as I understand that, nothing can mess with it. But if my self-worth is dependent upon my earthly relationships alone, I'm not saying they're not important, but if that's where all of it is tied in, then I'm, I'm, I'm going to be hurting for a long time because I'm going to try to please everybody and consequently I'm going to please no one and in particular I'm not going to please myself. And that's what I can't live with. And more importantly, I'm not going to please God. I need to understand why I am important. And then, and really only then, can I serve with humility and a sense of purpose, knowing where I came from, why I'm here, and where I'm going when this one's over? Three reasons. Here's why you are somebody. Number one, because of your maker. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image. And he did. He created him in his image, male and female. He created him. I am here as a direct result of the creative power of God Almighty when he formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul and then it was determined as God had already known it was not good for Adam to be alone and so Adam needed to learn that so God caused all the animals to pass in front of him. Adam gave him a name which kind of 
blows away the fact that primitive man had the brain the size of a walnut since Adam was smart enough to name every species, well, not every species, but every family of animal on earth at the time. He had to be a pretty sharp fella. The point is, he named all the animals and God let him see that none of them were suitable for him. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. As he slept, he took from the side the rib, closed the flesh instead thereof, and from that rib he formed woman. And she was called woman because she was taken out of man. And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two become one flesh, and let what God has joined together, deal let man put asunder. She was called Eve, the mother of all living. The point is, when God miraculously created Adam from the dust of the ground, and then created the first woman, Eve, from a rib from his side, from that point on, he put into law the law of procreation. He set that in motion, and that's been going on now for thousands of years, and that's why I'm here and you're here. And if God hadn't started the whole thing, we neither would be here. And God is the one that implants in us an eternal soul that is designed, his purpose is for it to live with him forever. Now, the choice of where, he's gonna, where it's going to live is mine because it's me. But I need to respond in a way to God's love that he desires so I can live with him forever. The point is, I'm here because God made me. God made you. We, you, I, all of us are made in the image of God by God. And folks, you cannot run down the creation without insulting the creator. When you look in the mirror and you say, boy, that guy's not much. What a failure. Man, you are insulting God because God put you here. I used to have a sign. I don't know where it is. It's a little bear holding a heart or, or holding a sign. It was on the shelf. As, I've got like thousands of knickknacks, so there's no telling where it might have gone. But anyway, it said on there, I'm somebody because God don't make no junk. God don't make no junk. And, and that's a fact. Now, some folks, Jim here works with kids, I'm sure, that have felt like they're junk a lot of time. God, and that's got to be a tough, tough job to try to instill in a young person a sense of value who has been told they're worthless most of their young life or has been abandoned to the point they feel worthless. And some of us who are full-time folks and are there all the time for our kids have a hard time doing it. So you can imagine. I cannot run down myself without insulting God. You can't run down the building without insulting the builder. Let me show you what I'm talking about. There was a preacher. He was holding a meeting out in Texas one time, and so he flew out there, and the local preacher, they had never met before, the man had never been to this particular congregation, and so the local preacher went out to meet him at the airport and take him to his motel, where he was going to be staying for the week during the meeting. And so he picked him up at the airport, they got his luggage, and they got it in the car, and and it was like Saturday before the meeting started on Sunday, and so the guy had gotten there that afternoon, so he was going to go to the local preacher's house, eat some supper, and then a man was going to take him on to his motel and get him settled in and all that, and, you know, tell him he'd come by and pick him up and all the good stuff, you know, for the meeting. Well, they're driving along, and they pull into this neighborhood, and man, I mean, there's some nice houses in this neighborhood. And the visiting preacher, he's just commenting, he says, brother, he said, boy, he said, this is a nice neighborhood. He said, you, boy, these are some pretty houses. He said, I mean, these yards, these houses, man, these are nice. He said, all except for that one down at the end of the street. It just, it just doesn't fit with the rest of these nice houses. And the local preacher said, brother, we did the best we could. Now, how do you reckon the visiting preacher felt? You know, that sit on a dime and dangle your feet, handball against the curb kind of thing? You know, how do you reckon the local man felt? He was insulted. Well, why? He didn't say anything bad about him. Yes, he did. 
the man had built the house and he insulted the house. You can't do that without insulting the man that built it. You can't run yourself down without insulting God, so stop it. You are somebody and believe it because God made you. But there's another reason. In my mind, perhaps even greater than that, if you can get greater than that, as to why you are somebody. How do you determine what something's worth? How, how do you figure that one out? You know, how much is this suit worth? Well, it's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. There you go. That's how you determine value, by whatever someone's willing to pay for it. You are somebody because of the price paid for you. See, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 tells us that we no longer belong to ourselves, but we have been bought with a price. What do you reckon that price was? Oh, well, Acts chapter 20, verse 28 makes it pretty clear. The church which Jesus purchased with his own blood. If you are a child of God, if you, by virtue of your faith in God, repentance from sin, confession of Christ, and immersion in water for the forgiveness of sin, if you have done those things, if you have obeyed that part of the will of God, then you have become a child of God, a Christian. If I am, if you are a child of God, you have been bought with a price. And the price was the life blood of the only begotten Son of God. Now think about that. How in the world can I look at myself and say, you are just such a pile of nothing. When Jesus said, Alan, you are worth so much, I'm going to die for you. Jesus paid the price for me. That's how value is determined. What did God think I'm worth? The life of his son. And this wasn't just a normal son. This was and his eternal son who he let come to this earth primarily to die for me and for you. Sure, for everybody, but it's personal. He died for Alan Watkins. He died for Randy Bybee. He died Roger Mayberry. He died for each and every one of us. If I was the only person on earth, I'm convinced if that was the only way, Christ would have died because that would have been my only hope. The price paid. A preacher friend of mine, Jerry Barber, who just recently retired from uh, down in Franklin after a number of years with the, um, well, my brain is fried again. But anyway, in Franklin, at, uh, yeah, I've only been there numerous times and know him real well. He just came to share some weekend with us three weeks ago, but that's another story. Anyway, the point is he's now doing interim preaching. In fact, he's up in Kentucky, started uh, last Sunday, I guess it was. And and so preaching for him, when people let a pre when a preacher leaves before they hire the next one, he goes and for six to 18 months he preaches in the interim so that when the new guy comes in, he doesn't have to put up with, well, Brother So-and-so did it this way. Brother So-and-so, because Brother So-and-so hopefully will have been gone long enough that people will give the new guy a chance. If you were a preacher, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about, how that works. But anyway, Jerry's a pretty sharp fellow. When he lived in Dalton, Georgia, and uh, Barry's Chapel in Franklin's where he preached. When he lived in Dalton, Georgia, and preached at the central congregation down there, this was back when Bentwood rocking chairs were more popular than they are now. In fact, 
I don't even know if you can find one anymore. But anyway, he he decided he wanted a bent wood rocker, so he got him a Sears Roebuck catalog. That's back when Sears Roebuck still made a catalog, and people actually used it to order things from, if you know what I mean. But the point is, he got it. He looked in that Sears Roebuck catalog, and he found what a new bent wood rocker would cost. Okay, and then he thought, well, because if you knew Jerry, you'd know he squeaks when he walks. Uh, I won't say he's tight, he's just frugal. But the point is, he decided he might could save a few dollars if he waited a little while and checked the paper. So he kind of checked the paper for a week, too, and sure enough, he found an advertisement for an estate auction. An elderly lady had passed away and listed in the newspaper there in the classifieds in this auction, one of the items listed was a Bentwood rocker. He thought, ah, that's local. This is coming Saturday. I'll run over there and take a look at it. And if it's in good shape, I'll just see if I can't pick it up and save a few dollars. So that's what he did. He went over and a few things came up for bid. And then the Bentonwood Rocker hit the stage. And, you know, somebody over here bid, somebody over here bid, Jerry bid, somebody bid, somebody bid, Jerry bid, young lady over here bid, young lady over here bid, Jerry bid. And in just no time, he already had set a limit because, you know, you can get all fired up in these auctions and end up spending way too much money just going, yep, 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 you know, and, you raise your eyebrow and then you spent five grand and you don't even know it, you know. But anyway, the point is, so he had already set a limit, so it got to his limit in a hurry. This young lady over here bid. This young lady over here bid higher. This young lady over here raised it. This one over here raised it again. And in no time, they had that Bentwood rocker higher than a brand new one at Sears. And finally, one of them quit and the other one bought it. And you know, when the auction was over, Jerry, being Jerry and being curious and inquisitive, he had to figure that one out. So. He, he went over to the lady that had bought the rocker to the young lady and he said, ma'am, I'm not, I'm not trying to be, you know, nosy or anything, but he said, are you aware that you could have bought a brand new Bentwood rocker at Sears for less money than you paid for this used one? She said, absolutely. She said, I knew that. So he said, well, then if you don't mind my asking, he said, why did you bid higher than what a new one cost? And she, he said, I don't understand. She said, no, you don't understand. She said, see, you were bidding on a Bentwood rocking chair. She said, that was my cousin over there. We were bidding on memories of our grandmother rocking us to sleep in that chair when we were little. See, value is determined by whatever someone is willing to pay. Christ said, you're worth my life. This story appeared in Reader's Digest many, many years ago. On a South Sea island, they had an unusual custom. Whenever a young man wanted to marry a young lady, he went to that young lady's father, and he offered for her hand in marriage, he would pay for that privilege with cows. You know, like, cows. Well, the most that had ever been paid for a woman was four cows. Now look at your elbow, guys. Is she worth four cows? But anyway, you don't have to answer that. Point is, the most that had ever been paid for one woman was four cows. Well, there was a young man named Johnny Ring, and he left the island when he was young, and he had gone away and done pretty well for himself, and he came back to set up shop, and he wanted to live on the island where he was raised. In the meantime, there was this young lady that had gotten to marry an age, and her daddy was worried to death. He figured he was going to be stuck feeding this girl all her life because she was just so shy. She was so backwards. Just when they'd walk down the streets of the village, she would just, she'd walk behind everybody with her head down. If somebody said, hey, she'd just, how you doing? She's so shy, she wouldn't even speak. 
no confidence at all. And he was worried. He thought, this girl's not even worth one cow. What are they going to do? Cut one in half? How am I, how I going to get her married off? Well, for whatever reason, when Johnny Ring came back to the island to live, that's the girl he fell in love with. Don't know why. Don't know how. But that's who he decided he wanted to marry. And he went to her father and he said, Sir, I will give you eight cows for the privilege of marrying your daughter. Eight cows! Twice as many cows that had ever been paid in the knowledge of anyone on the island for a woman. Eight cows! Well, the father couldn't say yes fast enough. And they got married. And when this young lady would walk down the streets of the village with her new husband, she would walk behind him, just like this. People would say, hey, and she'd go, but you know what happened? As she would walk through the village, and sometimes as she would go to the market by herself, she would hear some people whispering behind her. She'd walk down the street and she'd hear these two ladies over there go, there goes an eight-cow woman. And she'd hear that. And then she'd go somewhere else somebody'd say, can you believe he paid eight cows for that woman? She is an eight-cow woman. My husband didn't give but two for me. Eight cows. You know what happened? Over a period of time, that young lady straightened up started walking side by side with her husband, began to speak. She began to walk, talk, and act like an eight-cow woman. Now, folks, you and I are one cross people. We need to act like it. We need to act like it. Get the frown off your face. Be thankful to God for His sacrifice and get on with it and share it with as many people as we can. And when I stumble, you think God's waiting to hurl his lightning bolts? Man, he sent his son to die because he knew I would stumble. Quit saying I'm a failure. Get up, let God dust you off, and get back on the path. A Christian, here's the good thing about being a Christian. I cannot fail. That's what's so neat about it. As a Christian, when I succeed, I succeed. And when I fail... God cleans me up, and I'll still succeed. The only time a Christian fails is when he quits. As long as I never quit, I will never fail. When I decide I'm not worth it, and I quit getting up when I fall, that's when I become a failure. God will pick me up if I let him, and he will clean me off. I don't care how many times I fall. I may fall in the same mud hole over and over. Sure, I need to learn and I need to grow. And eventually I need to overcome that. But while I'm working on it, God will keep cleaning me off. And he proved that to me because he loved me so much that he sent his only begotten son to die. God made you. Christ paid the price by dying for you. And the third reason that you're somebody... Is there ever somebody out there, maybe in the church, maybe in the world, maybe some highly successful individual as the world would define it, and we look at them and go, man, I wish I was that sharp. I wish I could do, wish this, wish that, wish this, wish that. Folks, we're all made out of the same stuff. Every single one of us is made out of the same stuff. 
I don't care if it's Bill Gates. I don't care if it's George Bush. I don't care if it's the poorest man in Putnam County. We're all made out of the same stuff. You know what that stuff is? And he formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath. We're made out of dirt. Every one of us made out of dirt wrapped around an eternal soul. And the dirt will go back to its natural form one day. Genesis 3.19 From dust thou art, unto dust thou shalt return. You don't hear that very much. It used to be said at funerals a lot, you know, at the gravesite. One time years ago, a little boy, he had been with his mom and his daddy, and a preacher said that at the funeral, said, From dust thou art, unto dust thou shalt return. Well, they got home shortly after that, and he changed his clothes and was looking for a toy. Hardwood floors, looked up under his bed, all those bed springs, he saw a bunch of dust bunnies up under there, and he came running out and he said, Mama, Mama! Somebody's under my bed, but I can't tell if they're coming or going. Well, you know, from dust thou art, unto dust thou shalt return. But every one of us is so much more than dirt. Paul talked about it. He said, we have this great treasure, this saving power of the gospel in earthen vessels. That's a fancy way of saying we have the power of the gospel carrying it around in dirt Jars, folks, what he's saying is it's in me and you as Christians. We have the power to share in dirt jars, but more importantly than this house that one day will pass away, Second Corinthians 5, 1, we are eternal souls, and they will never pass away. And we all are. And all of Gates' money, and all of the President's power, when it comes to the destiny of that eternal soul, does not give them one single leg up over that poorest man in Putnam County. Because when it comes to salvation, there is neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Gentile. All are equal in their opportunity for salvation. If we hear the truth and we obey the truth, the rest of it doesn't matter. We are all eternal souls. But we live in an age where if we're not careful, we get dehumanized into numbers. Have you noticed that? Those of you that just are in school or just got, man, you got your student ID number, you got your numbers this, you got this number, you got that number, you got to have your social security number, you got your PIN numbers on who knows how many different things, you got your passwords that have numbers, you've got, you got, you know, I mean, it is credit card numbers, bank account numbers, you know, and everything I do, I'm a number. And I'm not a number. It reminds me of the guy that got a call at 2 o'clock in the morning. Woke him up and he said, You've got the wrong idiot, you number. You know, that, that's, that's the way it is. We, we're not numbers. We're not numbers. We are people who are eternal in nature. And one day that's all that's going to matter. And we look at others and we think, man, they are so powerful. They're this, they're that. And we tend to get envious when we need to realize that I don't care who it is. They have an eternal soul that needs salvation. Period. And that's all that matters. I need to look at everyone as though we are equal. Doesn't matter what color my skin is. And boy, that's still a hard one for some of us in the church. It doesn't matter how much bank money is in my bank account. It doesn't matter where I came from. It doesn't matter what my mama did, what my daddy did. What, it, what matters is I am an eternal soul. 
and so are you. And so is every eyeball you come in contact with every single day. Everybody you see is an eternal soul. And that's what matters. And one day, that's all that will matter. You know, we look at people and we're just amazed. And You know, I, I, I read a story about a young man one time. He's a freshman in college. He's a freshman in college and he wanted to run for president of the freshman class. There were 35 other freshmen that ran for freshman president of the freshman class. This kid didn't even make it past the first ballot. He lost on the first ballot with 35 candidates. You know what his name was? John Fitzgerald Kennedy. There was another young man who failed the third grade. He had to repeat the third grade, and he was so irresponsible as a young man, he even got fired from a paper route. You know what his name was? Robert Kennedy. There's another young man who liked to draw, and he was convinced personally. He just knew that he was a good artist. And he thought, you know, if I could just get to where people buy stuff like this, I can be a great commercial artist. And he thought, you know, Los Angeles, Hollywood. I mean, this was years ago, but that was the, that's where it's all at. And so he packed up his meager belongings and he headed for Hollywood. And he was so poor, he had to rent an apartment that was infested with mice. But you know, a few years later, that young man and one of those mice got real famous. Now, what do you reckon it was that made Walt Disney the famous individual and the powerful man that he was? You think it was the four or five times he suffered a nervous breakdown along the way? You think it was the six or seven times he had to declare bankruptcy before he finally made it? What do you reckon it was? Somebody asked him one time, said, Mr. Disney, so what does it mean to be a celebrity? And he said, let me tell you something. He said, being a celebrity won't even keep fleas off my dog. He said, if it won't keep fleas off my dog, I figure it must not be worth much. Now, I don't know what else the man had right, but he understood that one. The bottom line is we are all made out of the same stuff. Quit being envious. Quit being jealous. Be thankful for what I've got. God made me. Christ died for me. And I, like every other soul on this earth, am going to exist somewhere in eternity. And I need to make sure that I understand who I am well enough that God and me together can ensure that where I'm going is heaven. You're somebody. In 326 B.C., Alexander the Great was nearing the end of his world-conquering tour. He was about 33 years old, very young man, but he was a powerful warrior. Had been all his life from his teen years. And he was the leader of that Hellenistic army. And he had spread his power all the way. Now he was over in India. And he encountered some of the fiercest fighting he had encountered anywhere in the world. In a region of India under the reign of King Porus. As King Porus fought Alexander and his just huge army. He lost 12,000 men. And finally just through sheer force of numbers. Alexander conquered the kingdom of Porus. And King Porus was captured. He was put in the chains and thrown in jail. And as Alexander was sitting on his own thr- on Porus's throne, and he called Porus before him. So they went down, chained him up, got him out of jail, brought him before the most powerful man on earth at the time, Alexander. 
Alexander was a ruler who could have said, kill him. And they'd have killed him right then. And there's not a soul on earth that would have done a thing about it. He could have said, torture him to death. He could have said, throw him in the ocean. He could have said anything he wanted. He could have done anything he wanted to this man. And nobody would have stopped him. Because he was the most powerful man on earth at the time. And so Porus stood before him in chains. And Alexander said, Porus, he said, I'm a soldier, you're a soldier. He said, your army fought more valiantly than almost any force I have encountered anywhere in the world. He said, the loyalty that your soldiers showed to you with their willingness to give their lives for your kingdom was impressive. I respect good soldiering and good military leadership. He said, out of respect for that, I'm going to grant you one request. How would you like to be treated? Now, what would you have said?